Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What was Trotsky's advice for revolutionaries on unions? The trade unions are the basic organisations of the working class. Trotsky, like all who follow the ideas of genuine Marxism, believed the working class was the only social force which can lead a socialist revolution. But the unions themselves can be timid or even hold back struggles by their members. And anyway, the working class today looks very different to the working class in 1917. So how did Trotsky see the unions in relation to the struggle for socialism? And are those ideas, and the unions themselves, still relevant to that struggle today? This episode of Socialism looks at the organised working class. Trotsky and the trade unions. So this episode we're going to be talking about Leon Trotsky and the trade unions, an extremely important question for Marxists. And we have with us today Philip Stott from Socialist Party Scotland. Hello, Philip. Hi, James. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Good. Smashing. Well, our first question is that Leon Trotsky, as Marxists have done historically, consistently based himself on the working class as the key force in changing society. Why is that? Well, James, I think that Leon Trotsky's position on basing himself on the working class flows entirely from the position adopted by Marxism from its inception, which is really that the trade unions, that the working class generally, are the key force through which society could be changed, through which capitalism could be ended, and a socialist society could be established. And if you look at Even the founders, if you like, of scientific socialism, Marx and Engels, right from the start, they based themselves on that fundamental principle. As far back as 1848 and the writing of the Communist Manifesto, both Marx and Engels wrote that the proletariat or the working class was the only consistent revolutionary force in society. And it was a class forged by the growth of capitalism, which was an industrial system of exploitation, that relied on the labour power of the proletariat to create surplus value or profit. And by creating the working class, by throwing human labour into factories and mills, mines and shipyards, then a new revolutionary class was born with really a common experience in terms of work, a common experience of living conditions, of exploitation, that drove the working class to have, if you like, a collective outlook and a collective consciousness that could allow the working class to act together and become, in the words of Marx, the grave digger of capitalism. And therefore, for Trotsky, for Marxists generally, this class, the working class, was the key to the formation of a socialist society and that scientific socialism from the very beginning based itself in finding a road to the working class and in particular That meant carrying out consistent activity among the mass workers' organisations, in particular the trade unions, which emerged as a mass force in the 19th and 20th centuries. So what was Trotsky's advice then with regard to working in the trade unions? Because presumably there were differences between the trade unions in the time of Marx and Engels and trade unions in the time of Leon Trotsky, Vladimir Lenin and so on. 
Well, yes, Trotsky and Marxists generally saw the trade unions as the basic organisations of the working class that were forged and emerged as a reaction to the exploitation that existed in the workplace. So trade unions were formed to improve wages, to fight, to shorten the working day and therefore, you know, the amount of time available by the capitalists to exploit a worker, to fight for improved health and safety and so on. And if you look at the emergence of the trade unions globally in the 19th and then the 20th century, these organisations really exploded into mass membership. And therefore, the basic organisations of the working class, that's how Trotsky and Marxists viewed them. And that meant that in order to build points of support for socialist ideas, for revolutionary socialist ideas, it was necessary to have not just an episodic approach to the trade unions and the working class. And it had to be a consistent orientation. So that meant, for example, seeking to build points of support inside workplaces and trade union organisations and continue to develop that. So Trotsky's advice to all of his work and all of those who followed his ideas and sought to establish revolutionary socialism was to carry out that most consistent of work inside the trade unions and inside the workplace itself. And certainly, again, that would apply as much today as it did then. In summary, there's no road to successful socialist revolution without a serious place to the trade unions and the workplaces. In fact, Trotsky went as far as to insist, as Lenin did, in the establishment of the Third International after the Russian Revolution, as Trotsky did in relation to the Fourth International in the 1930s, that you could not join those organisations unless you had a consistent approach to work inside the trade unions, which were the mass organisations of the working class. And I think that that says everything in terms of the approach and how seriously Trotsky himself took the question of the trade unions. Now, I think listeners may be paying attention to what's being said here and perhaps asking, well, look, in the 19th century when Marx and Engels were writing, you had an explosion of industry in Britain, for example, whereas there isn't the same sort of industry in Britain today. And you talk about the mass organisations of the working class. There was a mass membership of the trade unions in the 20th century in the time of Lenin and Trotsky, for example. But for a number of decades, trade unions have seemed to be perhaps in decline. So given that situation, and particularly given how much the working class has changed, people might ask, is that approach not redundant today? Are the unions still relevant to achieving socialist change? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, James, because if you look at the situation today, undoubtedly it's not the same as it was 100 or 150 years ago. The traditional sectors of the working class, the industrial proletariat, if you like, have been weakened as a result of the decline of manufacturing and industrial production, if you take Britain or if you take Europe or even the United States as an example. However, that does need to be balanced by the growth of the working class in Asia, in Latin America, in China and in Africa, which is a consequence, of course, of globalisation and the shifting of production by big business from higher wage economies in the so-called advanced capitalist countries to the more developing world itself. Now, we do need to emphasise here that there are globally around 3 billion people employed in one way or another in the capitalist economy. Perhaps two-thirds of those are in the informal sector, so working as precarious workers, irregular workers, or the self-employed. But even then... 
even making those points, there are still over 500 million people in the trade unions globally. That's according to the International Labour Organization. Now, clearly, trade union density varies from country to country. In a country like, for example, Britain, you have perhaps a trade union membership of around 25 to 30 percent with a higher concentration in the public sector. But one of the experiences that we've had during the COVID-19 pandemic has been the way in which the trade unions have emerged as a point of attraction for workers and for young people as well who are facing major attacks on jobs, on working conditions and incomes. And undoubtedly, it's been the case that the trade unions are now seen even more as a point of necessary, if you like, to defend workers' rights. In fact, the Economist magazine, a journal of big business in Britain, commented recently in their headline that the trade unions are back. And that was in response to the number of people applying to join unions, for example, the education unions in Britain or the public sector workers like Unison, like the GMB and Unite, who've seen huge increases in trade union membership. So, The makeup of the working class may have changed, but if you look at sectors like logistics, like communications, like retail, transport, like public services, what's happened during the COVID-19 pandemic is that the working class actually now are seen increasingly as the key to the development of society, particularly if you look at the way that the working class has been seen in the health sector, in the NHS, in social care and so on, has been so important to the running of society. And in that sense, we have to re-emphasise the idea that, that today, as it was 150 years ago, yes, the working class has changed, but it is more important now than ever before that the working class are the key to the running of society, and particularly from a socialist point of view, the key to the changing of society from capitalism to socialism. Now, the trade unions contain all sorts of different levels and layers within them, don't they? Because on the one hand, people have been pouring into the unions during the COVID-19 crisis. On the other hand, many of the union leaders don't seem to have been willing to lead a fight for their members during this crisis, which has left a lot of the ordinary members to do things for themselves. So how did Trotsky differentiate between the tops of the trade unions, the leaders and the senior staff members, and the rank and file of the unions, the ordinary members in the workplaces? Well, again, that's an important aspect because Trotsky, as Marxists have done traditionally, take an all-sided view of the trade unions. They have a dual character. On the one hand, the majority of the trade union leaders, as Trotsky pointed out many times, have a tendency really to fuse together with the overall interest of capitalism. In fact, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, internationally, we saw a tendency for the leaders of the major trade union federations to offer support to capitalist governments at the start of the crisis. This idea of we're all in this together, we all have to pull together in the interests of the nation. That really was the message from the leaders of the TUC and the Scottish TUC and trade union federations internationally. And Trotsky's writings in the 1920s and the 1930s emphasised this tendency of the trade union bureaucracy at the top to fuse together with the interest of capitalism against the interests of the working class. But on the other hand, the dual character of the trade unions also emphasises that they are mass workers' organisations at their base and therefore play a critical role. It is interesting, of course, to point out, and there's a general secretary election in the Unison Trade Union in Britain over the next number of months, but a very large number 
of the trade union leaders are paid exorbitant salaries to the extent that perhaps in Britain there are 30 major unions whose general secretaries earn over £100,000 a year in the United States. It's not uncommon for trade union officials to earn more than half a million dollars a year. And of course, it's clear that for socialists and Marxists in contesting elections inside the trade unions that we demand that trade union officials, that trade union general secretaries and so on should live on the average wage of a skilled worker. So the dual character of the trade unions is something that Trotsky recognised, but it did not mean that we simply turn our back on the trade unions because we don't like the makeup of the trade union leadership. It's absolutely essential that we work in order to transform the trade unions in a left direction with a socialist programme and work to ensure that that transformation of the trade unions can be possible in order to build fighting organisations that will defend the working class going forward. So this is what Trotsky was calling for in the trade unions in the 1920s and 30s. How should Marxists approach that work in the unions today? Well, we can take, if you like, the experience of Bolshevism, of Marxism and of the advice and the writings of Trotsky and base ourselves on that today because the fundamental approach that Trotsky took, we would say, still applies by also taking into account the differences that we touched on earlier in terms of the overall makeup of the working class itself. Now, what that really means is that we need to have the approach that says that the trade unions are the mass workers organisations but in general and in most cases there has a leadership that has a pro-capitalist outlook and how we resolve that dichotomy is by operating on a clear patient approach towards building the forces of socialism and Marxism inside the trade union organisations. Now, the Socialist Party in Scotland, as the Socialist Party in England and Wales, is affiliated to the Committee for the Workers International. Now, when the CWI was established in 1974, one of its founding principles, its statutes, if you like, was that we reassert our confidence in the industrial proletariat as the decisive force in the struggle for socialism in every country. And I think we would still apply that today in 2020. And in reality, what that means is carrying out patient and consistent activity in the workers' arenas, seeking to build our forces amongst the working class, seeking to establish in the trade unions broad left organisations rooted in the rank and file and in the membership to challenge the pro-capitalist policies of the leadership, to give, if you like, a platform for workers who want to move into industrial action to defend their jobs and their living conditions, that they have confidence that there's a leadership up to that task. And in the words of Trotsky, a revolutionary party, a Marxist party like ours, must know how to establish correct relations with the working class and the work in the trade unions is essential to that. And that has allowed... You know, for example, the Socialist Party in Scotland to play a leading role in the recent 2018 equal pay strike in Glasgow, where thousands of working class women were able to win a major victory over unequal pay by using the methods of strike action. And that, if you like, is an example, as was the Lindsay Oil Refinery struggle in 2009 or the work that's been carried out by our comrades in Northern Ireland just now through the NIPSA trade union. All of these underline the importance of basing ourselves on the working class and particularly on consistent work inside both the workplaces and the trade union organisations. And that's really the whole history of the Socialist Party and of Militant before that and of the Committee for the Workers International on a global scale has been that unique approach 
towards trying to build up our forces and to base ourselves on the working class. Now, this might seem to be an obvious point, but in actual fact, if you look at the origins of the CWI and of militant before it, it was really based on the idea that many Trotskyist organisations had broken from that fundamental principle that the working class was the key force that would change society. And many Trotskyist organisations, including the United Secretariat, the Fourth International, the USFI, had broken with that idea and had moved towards the idea that the detonators of revolution would be students or would be guerrilla struggle or things of that character, if you like, what we would call mandalism, rather than base themselves fundamentally on the potential for the proletariat or the working class to be the key force through which society is changed. So our work in the trade unions has been unique, it's been principled, and it's something that has allowed us to emerge as a very important factor inside these workers' organisations in Scotland and Britain, and in some cases internationally as well. And that's precisely because we follow Trotsky's advice of seeing these arenas of the mass workers' organisations as absolutely crucial for the building of a decisive force in order to lead, yes, day-to-day struggles, in order to win victories for workers now on the issues of pay, of conditions and so on, but above all, in the development and the building of a mass revolutionary force that has the potential to change society. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that the CWI's founding statutes call the industrial working class the decisive factor for socialist change in every country because, as you've mentioned previously, it's true that on a global scale, the traditional, if you like, industrial proletariat has, to an extent, been exported to some of the developing economies in the East, in particular China, Bangladesh, countries like that. But it is worth reminding listeners that even in these so-called deindustrialized countries, while, as you've explained, the working class has changed, there is still an industrial working class. The workplaces may be smaller, but can still play a leading role within the wider working class and within wider society. I mean, if you look at Britain, for example, official government statistics for the United Kingdom, if you add together workers employed in manufacturing, construction, and add in, as you suggested, logistics, transport and storage, there's still, I think, around 6 million industrial workers within the working class majority in Britain. So it does still exist, albeit in a changed form. Yes, I think that's a very important point, James, that we do emphasise that the change character of the working class has not in any way altered its fundamental decisive role the working class has to play in society. And particularly, I think it is very important that we do emphasise the crucial factor of the power of the working class, that the potential power of the working class, particularly when it comes to industrial struggle, strike action, for example, number of examples that we could give even recently that when workers take action and workers stop production or they stop delivering services, then what you have is a major challenge to the capitalist system. So the fundamental power that exists and the potential power that exists for the working class has not changed. And let's not forget, um, just in passing, that in 1917, in the Russian Revolution, the first ever you know, workers' revolution where the working class overthrew capitalism and landlordism, the working class in Russia only made up around about 10% of the population. Today, of course, urbanisation of society, including in Latin America, including in Asia, including in Africa, means that really the working class globally is a far bigger force than it was at the time of the Russian Revolution in 1917. 
Now, Trotsky spoke a lot about the importance of united front work. Now, listeners, if you've been following this series, will have discussed that in the episode on Trotsky and the struggle against fascism. But perhaps, Philip, you could explain a little bit more about what a united front is and how it applies in the trade unions. Well, this was really a key question for the Communist International in the 1920s and 1930s. And really, in essence, the idea of the united front is to try to bring together the mass workers' organisations who in some cases were separated. It's not uncommon in the trade union field for there to be different trade union federations, for example, different trade union organisations. As we know, even in the case in Britain, while there's the TUC, there are also many different trade unions. So the United Front tactic really involves Marxists proposing joint struggle, joint actions, between the mass or the semi-mass reformist-led organisations, including the trade unions. So today we raise very often the idea about the need for a united and coordinated strike action by the trade unions and workers' organisations, for example, against the austerity programme of governments to build mass you know, struggle as a step to a 24-hour general strike to defend the position of the working class under capitalism. So in that sense, the idea of the United Front tactic that Trotsky advocated was for the need to build maximum unity among the organisations of the working class while at the same time appealing to workers even in reformist-led organisations like, for example, the trade unions or the social democratic parties in the past where they had a mass base to appeal to those workers to come over to the programme of Marxism in that sense. And again, today we can draw experiences and examples of a smaller scale, like, for example, in Britain, the experience of the National Shop Stewards Network, which brings together hundreds of shop stewards across many trade unions, is an attempt to establish the idea of a united front on a specific issues around the trade unions, as, for example, is the experience of us striving to build broad left organisations in the trade unions, really trade union platforms that they aim to bring together trade union activists, lefts and socialists in order to develop an alternative pole of attraction as opposed to the pro-capitalist trade union leadership as well. So the idea of the United Front, as Trotsky saw it, was to try to ensure that where the communist parties, I'm talking here about the communist parties in the 1920s and the communist international and the leadership of Lenin, where they were still a minority of the working class, it was very important to try to seek to build a majority position in the working class by using the united front tactic to build united struggle across the different sections of the working class, but at all times ensuring that the ideas of Marxism and the ideas, if you like, of the communist parties at that time were not hidden but they were clear and they were open and they were available to the workers inside the different trade union and political organisations of the time. So on that basis of achieving united struggle with the reformist-led groupings and organisations whilst proposing genuine Marxist revolutionary socialist ideas, it provided a forum for Marxists to reach the ranks of the trade unions and the social democratic parties and thereby spread their ideas. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So the key thing being that after the Russian Revolution in 1917, you had a revolutionary conflagration across Europe, revolutionary situations erupting in countries like Germany, like Hungary, we had the 1926 general strike in Britain as well, for example. And therefore, the task facing the communist international at that time was to try to reach 
the mass of workers, including those who still had illusions in the social democracy, were still under the influence of reformist ideas in the trade unions as well, in order to win them to the programme of Marxism. It wasn't just enough to propose this as our programme, it was necessary also to propose joint activity, joint struggle, a common movement, if you like, against capitalism, and then to win the confidence of workers and the ideas of socialism and Marxism, to win them away from the influence of reformist or pro-capitalist ideas. And that United Front method, that United Front tactic was going to be crucial in that sense. And that was something that Trotsky fought to defend. Now, today, obviously, the situation is slightly different because we don't have mass workers' parties at this stage. However, a key demand, if you like, of ourselves today, of the Socialist Party, the key demand for the workers' movement, we believe, should be the creation of new mass workers' parties, which perhaps in its early stages would not necessarily have a revolutionary programme, but perhaps would have a reformist programme. Nevertheless, it would be an arena in order to develop the ideas that were necessary to overthrow capitalism, an arena within which socialists and Marxists could develop its joint activity on a united front base to propose struggle against capitalism and against the bosses and at the same time put forward a programme that would clearly explain the need to transform society in a socialist direction. And one final question on the United Front. Listeners may be asking, well, how far should a United Front extend? I mean, I'm thinking, for example, that there are left groups in Britain and around the world, some of whom call themselves Trotskyist groups, who would say that, yes, For example, the Labour Party, which officially, if you look at its constitution and some of its official statements, is a social democratic party. But we would argue in the form of most of its politicians, its current leader, Keir Starmer, and most of its MPs and councillors, acts more or less openly in the defence of big business and the profit system. There are groups who would say, well those politicians should be brought on board. There are even left groups who would say, well, we should work with, for example, liberal capitalist politicians like the Liberal Democrats and some other groupings against the right wing of the capitalists, the Tories and in extreme circumstances, the fascists. Is that appropriate for United Front work? Well, I think the answer to that is simply to pose the question, where is the working class? In which organisations, which arenas are the working class involved? And our orientation would be there. If you take the case of the Labour Party, the defeat of Corbynism, the move to the right under Starmer, in a much more Blairite and pro-capitalist direction, poses really the need to establish a new workers' party and to encourage the trade unions to break from a pro-capitalist party like Labour and establish its own political organisation to fight for the interests of the working class. So there are, if you like, the idea of the United Front would be the idea of uniting or proposing joint mass activity with workers' organisations. And at this stage, you'd have to say that the Labour Party, certainly in Scotland, and certainly the case with many of the ex-social democratic parties internationally, you could not really say that these were workers' organisations even at their base. It's necessary, of course, to engage in discussion with the Corbyn layer who's joined the Labour Party to support Corbyn to try and change the Labour Party. That has now come to an end. It's necessary now to open up discussion about the need to build a new workers' party. So the United Front tactic can still be applied to those layers who understand the need to build a new political organisation, but it won't be done through the Labour Party, in our view, at this stage. So in that sense, there is limit to what a genuine United Front policy is and the idea of forming 
a collaborative approach to Liberals and other pro-capitalist parties is much more the idea of a popular front rather than a united front. And we need to differentiate between the two. The idea of a popular front being that the interests of the working class are ultimately relegated behind the interests of establishing a bloc between the so-called left and the ultimately pro-capitalist leaders, which would be unacceptable. It's necessary for us to base ourselves on the working class and really only on the working class in order to change society. Now, in 1926, Britain underwent a general strike and the experience of that general strike and particularly the mistaken approach of the Communist Party during that strike was a theme which Trotsky emphasised much in his writings. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, you had really after the Russian Revolution in October 1917 an explosion of revolutionary potential particularly in Europe, but also internationally, with a series of revolutionary or pre-revolutionary situations erupting throughout Europe. And Britain was impacted, of course, by that. And really the high point of the struggle in Britain was, of course, as you said, the general strike of 1926. Now, at that time, by 1926, Lenin had died. Trotsky was increasingly isolated inside the Russian Communist Party and inside the Comintern, which was the Communist International. Stalin and Bukharin were the two main leaders of the Communist International at that time. Now, under their leadership, the Communist Party had established what was called an Anglo-Russian Committee. And really that was a block between the Russian trade unions, which of course were revolutionary trade unions inside the Soviet Union, and the General Council of the TUC. Now, that might immediately raise alarm bells because of the character of the General Council of the TUC, but it was justified by Stalin and Bukharin by the fact that there were left-wing elements on the TUC General Council who were friendly towards Soviet Russia. Now, unfortunately, this tactic of the Anglo-Russian Committee being established, which really was to try to defend the Soviet Union against foreign intervention, because, of course, there had been the recent experience of the White Armies going in after October 1917 to try to overthrow the Russian Revolution. But this became a bloc that Stalin and Bukharin had defended, and it really led to the misleading of the tactics of the Communist Party in Britain. Effectively, what happened is that the role played by the TUC leadership and including the left trade union leaders who were reformist leaders, but when it came to the 1926 general strike, really capitulated to the interest of capitalism, which led to the calling off of the historic general strike of 1926, at a time, by the way, when the strike was still gathering support and more and more workers were joining the strike. At that point, then the interest of Stalin and of the increasingly bureaucratised Soviet leadership was they wanted to defend this Anglo-Russian agreement between the TUC and the left leaders of the TUC and Russia itself. And that led to the situation where the Communist Party failed to differentiate itself from the reformist lefts of the trade union movement in Britain. And it led to really the thrown away of an opportunity to really build the Communist Party as a significant force inside Britain itself. There did exist, by the way, inside the trade unions in Britain at that time, what was called the minority movement. And that was a broad left grouping. And it had big influence. It probably influenced around a million workers in Britain. 
And it could have acted as a real pole of attraction, if you like, as a real leadership as the TUC began to sell out the general strike. It would have been possible for the minority movement to emerge as a significant force. But it was also led by these same left leaders of the trade unions who the CP had blocked with. And by blocking with them and not criticising their actions and not preparing the working class for the sellout role that these reformists would play, it ended up in a situation where the minority movement collapsed. And in that sense, the Communist Party it had the opportunity to defend its political independence, to advocate a fighting policy and a revolutionary policy in front of the working class, but it failed to do that because it promoted this block between the trade unions in Russia and the TUC under the influence of Stalin. And in that sense, they missed an enormous opportunity to build a mass communist party in Britain, and this was not done. And Trotsky wrote extensively about the mistakes of that particular period. So the TUC, that's the Trade Union Congress, Britain's Trade Union Federation, the umbrella organisation for almost all the unions in Britain, has this problem, which you described earlier, that the leadership under capitalism will tend to fuse with the interests of the capitalist system. But in reacting against that, it's possible to make mistakes. Of course, the Stalinists ended up allying themselves with that sellout leadership. Last year, for example, there was a major debate in the Committee for a Workers' International with the attitude to the trade unions and the consistent orientation to the working class being a central issue in that debate. Could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, we had a sharp debate inside the Committee for a Workers' International in 2018 and 2019. And the dispute, like all of these ideological clashes inside a revolutionary organisation, had its origins really in the thrown back of political consciousness that had marked the collapse of Stalinism in 1989 and 1990. And in particular, the undermining of a socialist consciousness that did exist in a quite a broad sense in the 1970s and 1980s. And in particular, also, the central role that the working class would play in the struggle for socialism. And a trend had emerged inside the CWI in the latter half, really, of the 2010s that had reacted very negatively to the delay in the catching up of socialist consciousness and the lack of general sustained mass struggle since the capitalist crisis of 2007 and 2008. We described this tendency, this trend in the CWI as having a Mandalite character. Now, I referred to Mandalism earlier on, and that's really the idea that they began to look to forces outside of the working class to build on and really adapted to alien class ideas such as identity politics. Now, by making that point, I'm of course will emphasise that the CWI has an impeccable record of intervening and participating in struggles on issues around oppression, not least of all the recent Black Lives Matter movement, where our sections internationally have played a very important role in intervening with a transitional programme that links the fight against oppression to the need to fight for socialist change. But the debate inside the CWI did see this Mandalite trend really abandon the principles of Trotskyism, in other words, the centrality of the working class, the decisive role 
an activity and the importance of that activity inside the workers' organisations, particularly the trade unions, featured prominently. And during the debate that we had, those who eventually left the CWI turned their back on the trade unions. They turned their back on consistent work in the trade union organisations and in the workplaces. And they used to complain about the empty structures of the unions or the bureaucratic nature of the trade union leaders themselves. And of course, those are real factors. But the reality is and we'll see this in the period that we're moving into now, is that the potential for these mass workers organisations, the trade unions and the work in the workplaces will take on even more importance. And that has been the case during the COVID-19 pandemic when the working class has emerged increasingly seen as a very decisive force in the potential for the running of society. And Trotsky referred again and again and again to this question about the need for Marxists and for revolutionary socialists to connect with the working class in the workplaces and in the trade unions and to continue that work and activity. So the experience of our debate in the CWI fundamentally, in a nutshell, was a layer who had broken with the fundamental principles of Trotskyism and the consistent work that needed to be carried out inside the workers' organisations. And you simply cannot win the working class to the ideas of socialism unless you carry out that diligent and consistent work in the workplaces and the trade unions and as well discussing what tactics and strategy are needed in order to achieve that work. So the debate that we had and the divisions that we had in our ranks in 2019 reflected that pressure of these alien class ideas and a turning away, if you like, from the fundamental principles of Marxism, which is the need to base ourselves at all times on the working class and particularly its consistent work inside the trade unions. So Mandelism is one kind of mistake which can be made in reaction to these sorts of problems. It's named, of course, for Ernest Mandel, who was, as you mentioned earlier, talking about the United Secretariat of the Fourth International. He was a leader of the Fourth International sometime after Trotsky's death when it was decaying politically and moving away from those principled efforts to win the organised working class to socialist ideas, looking for shortcuts, in effect. But there are other mistakes which can be made when faced with such problems. And I think that some people would look at the situation of the trade unions right now and say, look, the leaderships, the bureaucracies, particularly in some trade unions such as Unison, which has a notoriously vicious and persecutory bureaucracy in Britain, these are real barriers to achieving militant workers' action and fighting for the working class. So is there therefore a case for calling for new trade unions and new workers' organisations to be built to replace those existing bureaucratic organisations? Under certain circumstances, yes, that is the case. So Trotsky himself dealt with this at some length in his writings in the 1930s. And actually just before he died, before he was murdered by a Stalinist agent as well, some of his material there touches on that. But we also have our own experience. I mean, in general, the approach that we would take that Trotsky took previously was to seek to fight inside the mass workers organisations even where they have defective leadership, pro-capitalist leadership and a bureaucratic caste if you like running the trade unions and for example I mentioned earlier about Unison, the example you gave of a highly bureaucratised trade union but not one in which the Socialist Party would argue that we should leave and establish a new trade union. At this stage our task is to try to regenerate if you like, a leadership that's worthy of the membership. And that can include contesting for, you know, for example, the general secretary election, which is underway inside that union 
just now. But there are circumstances and there can be circumstances where the workers feel so frustrated and are turning away from a particular trade union that the advocation of the building of a new trade union would be appropriate. And in that sense, Trotsky had an all-sided dialectical point of view on that topic. I mean, he wrote, for example, in advice to the Fourth International that the Fourth International should always strive to renew the top leadership of the trade unions. Do that boldly, do that resolutely but also to create in all possible instances independent militant organisations that correspond more closely to the task of mass struggle. Now, I referred earlier about the trade union membership and the scale of trade union membership in Britain, about 25% or so are in the trade unions. In France, right now, the membership of the unions is about 10%. In the United States, it's of a similar percentage in the neo-colonial world. It can be, in some cases, fewer than that. And very often, I think we need to be open to the idea that the emergence of new workers' organisations can be on the order of the day, and including ad hoc organisations. For example, what was the Soviet? It was a workers' committee that emerged during a revolutionary period, and the working class will strive to create, at certain times in the revolutionary struggle, strike committees, factory committees, and Soviets, as I mentioned. And this was also the experience in Chile in 1970 to 1973, where the workers, the revolutionary movement, threw up new organisations like the Cordones Industriales and the Japs, for example, to try to advance the revolutionary position. So we certainly would not be blind to the idea that new workers' organisations will emerge to take account of the tasks that the working class face. But that will also include, to a very significant degree, fighting to transform the existing trade union organisations in a left and a socialist direction so that the working class can really vomit out the bureaucratic pro-capitalist leaders that are really act as a massive impediment to class struggle, and never mind the struggle to overthrow capitalism, and therefore we can have a dual approach. And also, we have also seen recently that new unions can be formed in areas where there is no union organisation, for example, in the fast food sector, among delivery workers and those in the gig economy, then you can have new organisations can be established as well. But ultimately, it's very important that we defend the idea that in the mass workers' organisations, it's important to work where the workers are. And in that sense, the existing trade unions, if you like the traditional trade unions, for us in the main, at the moment, is a key central part of our activity, while also advocating the building of new and healthy workers' organisations as and when that's appropriate. So the approach, I suppose, is to consider what is the most effective way to reach and organise in a socialist direction the mass of workers. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So we don't have a one-size-fits-all policy. It's very important that we take the approach that we can have a number of different tactics and a number of different approaches depending on the specific objective conditions. I mean, the Soviets, as they emerged during the Russian Revolution of 1905 and then the revolutions of February and October 1917, were thrown up almost spontaneously by the working class seeking to move in the direction of taking a hold of society, of carrying out, if you like, the overturn of capitalism. And the Bolsheviks then had to deal with the concrete question of how to contest inside those workers' organisations by confronting reformist ideas, 
the Mensheviks and the social revolutionaries and so on. And every revolutionary process in history can open up new opportunities for ad hoc and workers' committees and so on to be established. So there are times when we need to advocate the building of new workers' organisations and there are times where we fight to transform existing workers' organisations, including, of course, the trade unions in the majority of cases today. So it's not a one-size-fits-all policy. It's above all what is necessary to advance the interests of the working class. And that, of course, is a tactical question. So we need infinite flexibility, as Leon Trotsky did, on the issue of the tactics while being very firm on the principle of the decisive role that the working class and its organisations will play in the struggle to overthrow capitalism. As always, if you like what you've heard, then recommend us to your co-workers and friends, donate to help fund us, and if you agree, join the socialists. Philip, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you, James. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Philip Stott and I'm James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The Socialist Event of the Year will be Socialism 2020. It's an open forum of discussion and debate over four days, the 20th to the 23rd of November. Join hundreds of socialists, trade unionists and working class fighters to discuss the way forward in this unprecedented crisis of capitalism. We're scheduling it online, but if in-person sessions become possible, you can upgrade your ticket near the time. Read more and book now at socialism2020.net. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.